listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Good morning, Real Life. That was good. Hey, I am excited to be uh, with you. I'm excited to share with you this morning as we're in uh, week three of our five-week series titled Discovering Your Mission. Uh, Hey, I want to start by kind of framing that title again. Uh, I know Thad has mentioned it, I know he's, he's implied it, but I just thought, particularly for today, that we maybe rephrase that, and maybe instead of discovering your mission, we would call it discovering your part in God's mission. Um, a whole different ballgame. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Henry Blackaby who wrote a workbook called Experiencing God. don't know if anybody ever saw that or read it, but uh, it was great. And this is one thing he said in that... Uh, kind of a main theme. Watch and see where God is at work and join him in what he's doing. Um, Because it's not so much what we do for God, it's what do we do to join God in what he's doing? Uh, What is his mission? And so that, we turn the page, and today we're going to talk about seek and save the lost. (laughs) Seek and save the lost. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be lost? Who are lost? Who are the lost ones? And what does it mean to seek and save uh, the lost? Well, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're going to turn, we're going to spend most of our time looking at uh, a parable that Jesus told. It's in Luke 15, or yeah, Luke 15, and uh, it's, it starts out this way. Um, it starts out with an introduction, which is really important says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. (laughs) So that's our introduction. And then it says, so then Jesus told them this parable. Uh, The introduction tells us why Jesus even told the parable. See, to the Pharisees, the lost, the being lost is a moral issue. It's a behavioral thing. You're lost if you're a sinner. If you do bad things, if you live an immoral life, that makes you lost. Uh, But it's interesting because these same sinners and tax collectors couldn't get enough of Jesus. They loved hanging out with him. Why? Why would they be so drawn to him? Well, it's because Jesus didn't define them by their behavior. Jesus accepted them for who they were. Jesus wanted to know them, wanted to have a relationship with them. And they knew that. They felt that. Um, So that was his thing. To Jesus, the lost are not lost because of behavior. They're lost because of a broken or a lost relationship. Uh, You know, Jesus, if you look at any stories in the Bible, Jesus is never concerned or obsessed with behavior. But he's always obsessed with how do we... We get in relationship with people. That's his. That's really the heart of God. Uh, from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, that broke relationship with God from the beginning. The rest of the Bible, the rest of human history, is about how God would do anything to restore that broken relationship. Uh, that's what lost is to Jesus. Well, what about us? Who are the lost to us? Uh, I just wonder if we put too much focus, too much emphasis on behavior, if that's what people hear uh, from us. So you have to 
change your behavior to have a right relationship with God. Because if that's the message they hear, that's the message we give, then we've missed the heart of God. Totally missed the heart of God. And people are catching the wrong message. Um, See, how we define the lost makes all the difference in how we treat people. How we define what it means to be lost makes all the difference in how we seek and save the lost. Um, So, we are going to turn to Luke 15, as Jesus does a great job of painting a picture of what it means to seek and save the lost. I'm going to read the whole thing, which it's kind of long, but it's, uh, I couldn't break it up. So just sit back, relax, uh, buckle up. We're just going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to come back and talk about two or three main things in here that really speak to us. So it goes this way. <clears throat> Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman who had ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over God, over one uh, sinner who repents. Then it says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizen of that country, who sent him out into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, His father saw him and filled with compassion, ran to him, threw his arms around him, kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. This is really one parable, three examples of what it means to be lost. Jesus is saying there's different ways. There are three ways to be lost. And the first story is a story of a sheep, sheep who just wandered off, sheep doing what sheep do. <laughs> they just eat, they wander, and pretty soon they find them. Where did the flock go? And they're stuck somewhere. And the sheep are not the sharpest livestock in the ranch. Um, you know, they, they don't know how to get back. They don't know how to find the flock again. They depend on the shepherd coming to find them. They're just out there somewhere. Um, myself, I can relate to this. Uh, Sixty years ago, I was a young lad, uh, seven years old, I think, and uh, the World's Fair came to Seattle. Uh, yeah, we had World's Fairs in those days. Sixties and seventies, there were several World's Fairs, and they were kind of cool. The, this one, 62, was in Seattle. I was the youngest of three boys, and our family went... And like a half a million people, then brand new Seattle Center, the Space Needle, all of that. So much to see, so much to do. Um, seven years old, and I'm sure, I don't know, I didn't ask, but I, I'm sure my parents kind of made sure, okay, stick together, hold your brother's hand. That lasted I don't know how long. But doing what I do, I'm a bit ADD anyway, so as a seven-year-old kid just going, oh my gosh, look at all this, so much to do, so much to see. I just realized after a while I'd lost connection. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. I just got wandered off, got lost. Uh, and I think, you know, there's probably a time where I'm, I am lost, but I don't know it because I didn't realize that I'd lost connection. But then, uh, you know, oh my gosh, where's, where's my family? Where's my brother? And uh, then I'm lost. Then I know I'm lost. Uh, and so I think that was probably obvious. Somebody around goes... <laughs> You look lost. And, uh, well, they had a little pen over here where they kept little sheep like me. Got wandered off, got lost. And I, my parents probably sure, you know, feeling the same kind of, oh, my gosh, where's, where's Gary? Um, and they asked somebody, and they said, oh, we have a pen for those kids over there. <laughs> so they went and got me and brought me back and reconnected me, and life is, is good again. Uh, I'm sure at that time they probably handcuffed me to my brother, and we continued on our journey so I wouldn't get disconnected. But, but that's a picture of the sheep being lost. Nothing to do with behavior. Then the second one, a totally different story. Here's a woman that has ten silver coins and she loses one in the house. It's possible to be lost in the house. I think it's a great analogy to people who grow up in the church, that grew up in the house, that grew up hearing, knowing, being around, experiencing all the church is. And yet, they're lost. How is that possible? Again, I don't think it's behavior. It's they just never knew what it meant to be connected. They never knew what it meant to be in relationship with the Father themselves. And so they're lost in the house. Uh, and it's a much different process. It's very focused, intentional, because it's in the house. I know it's here. I just got to 
sweep the house. I got to look carefully and find it. That's God's attitude to those lost uh, in the house. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Did anybody here lose anything in your own house? <laughs> it's kind of frustrating, isn't it? Because you know it's there. Uh, my wife is notorious for losing her phone a lot at home. And she, oh, you know, every three or four days, hey, could you ring my phone? I don't. Know. You know, I got my made sure I had my find my phone on, so I could. Oh yeah, it's here in the house. And we just begin the search, you know, and there it is. Finally find it. Uh, well, for me, I have a habit of leaving my keys, which I'm embarrassed to say so. Anybody lose their keys a lot in the house? <laughs> Why is that? I mean, I've been driving long enough. You would think every time I came home, take the keys out, set them in one spot, do whatever you're doing. When you leave, you pick your keys up. Life's easy. Why do I lose my keys? so frustrating to lose my keys in the house? But I begin the search, and it just, I know they're there. I know they're not out there somewhere. Cars in the driveway, you know, it's here. Um, but I will, I have to find it. I will, it's so intense, so finding my keys. Oh, there they are. Life's good again. Keys are back in my hands. I can live life the way I'm supposed to with my car. Um, so that's the, the lost coin. Uh, the final story, one we're probably more familiar with, is the lost son. In this case, the son is lost because of an intentional, rebellious decision. I want to be out of here. I want to take all that I can get and live life the way I want to live it, where I want to live it. Um, Very clear. Jesus kind of goes over and over again trying to tell these people, yeah, this, this kid made a lot of decisions that were very offensive, brought great shame to him, brought great shame to his family. How's God going to react to that one? Um, so that, that's that. Interestingly enough, this, in your Bible, it may be labeled the prodigal son. Another word that's popular about this. Uh, well, if you look at the definition of prodigal, it says, prodigal, spending resources freely and recklessly, wasteful extravagance. Definitely describes the younger son. But here's the thing. I think in, it describes the father as well. To me, I think this story is better labeled the prodigal father. And stick with me as as we kind of look at why that is. Um, But it starts out with a younger son going to to his father and said, I want my share of the estate. (laughs) Can you imagine a son coming to his father and saying, hey, you've done really well for yourself. You are a wealthy man, but you're also way too healthy. Uh, it's going to be 20, 25 years before I ever see any of this. Can I just have my share now? I mean, and he's telling this to this Pharisee audience people, and they're just totally freaked out. It's like, oh, he's done. He's immediately no longer the son in that family. You just don't do that. Um, but what does the father do? The very next verse says, so he divided his estate between them, between both of them. So he divided his estate, gave him everything. That's reckless. That's, that is freely, recklessly wasting. He did not deserve it. Why would he do that? And then the next little scene, so he gathers all that he has and he takes off for a far country. And there he squanders all of his wealth. Spends it all. And the, you, know, you can just tell the audience getting irate at this son. It's like, can we just end this kid's life now and be on? Spends all he has. And then a severe famine comes up. 
Now he's in desperate need. He hires himself. He connects himself to a citizen of that country who sends him into the fields to feed the pigs. Ah, pigs! This Jewish audience is freaking out. It's like, you don't touch a pig. It's unclean. You don't do that. Now you're, high, you're taking care of pigs? And then it gets so bad, they won't even give him the pods that they were feeding the pigs. He is starving to death. And then it says, when he came to his senses, he said, I will go back to my father. It doesn't say in here, by the way, oh, I'll leave this for you to figure out. But the first two, it said, great rejoicing over one who repents. We're talking about a sheep and a coin. Well, here it didn't say this guy actually repented. It just said, I got to survive. I know what I'll do. I'll go home and maybe I'll talk my dad into at least hiring me. Didn't say anything about I'm going to change my behavior. Oh, I'm so sorry for what I've done. He just wants to survive. So he comes up with this plan, this great speech, and he heads out for home. And then the next verse really defines the heart of God. Says the father when he saw him still a far ways off, which kind of tells you maybe the father's been out there every day on the porch looking for his son. But when the finally sees him, when he's still a far ways off, and the crowd could have filled in the story, he grabs his shotgun and begins shooting. (laughs) I mean, that's what the audience thought. Okay, what are you going to do to this kid? No. He's filled with compassion runs to his son, which we learned before. It's like, you bring shame on yourself. You don't do that. It's embarrassing. It's reckless. It's extravagant, wasteful. But he runs to his son, filled with compassion, throws his arms around him, kisses him. And the son begins his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Just, and he kind of just cuts him off. God is not Addressing, not concerned about his behavior. He's only concerned that the son is home. And then he says, bring the best robe. Put it on my son. See, in that culture, the son's got robes. Everybody knew, oh, you're a son of whatever his name. Uh, But the sons wore robes that were distinctive. He didn't just say, hey, grab his old robe. Bring the best robe and put it on him. This is my son who's home. Put the robe back on him. Put a ring on his finger. Oh my gosh, the audience is going nuts. The ring on your finger in that, it was like a credit card. The kid now had a signet ring. He had a ring of the family. He had total access to all the wealth of the family again. Are you kidding me? How reckless. How wasteful. How undeserving. And then he said, put sandals on his feet. Because only servants and slaves go barefoot. No son of mine is going barefoot. Put sandals on his feet. Go get the fatted calf. We'll kill it. We'll celebrate for my son is now back home. Gosh, what a picture. And I bet it was a whole village he's inviting. And they're all just going, what is this guy? And then we see the scene with the older son. The son who's out in the field finds out what's going on. He's angry. Well, I would suggest this older son is like the lost coin in this story. Because he pleads his case. He says, haven't I been with you? Haven't I slaved for you? Haven't I done everything you asked? Haven't I been a good kid? See, he was just as lost as the younger son. The younger son intentionally broke out relationship. But the older son is lost in the house. Because he thought to be in a right relationship with my father means I have to do the right thing. I have to obey him. He thought that would make him in a right place. And he wants the father to celebrate that. <laughs> 
Give me a goat. I'll celebrate how good I've been. And Goddard, the father just tries to correct him. Son, you don't, you don't get it. Your, your brother was lost. He's back. We're back in relationship. Let's celebrate. Um, I just love that picture. Um, there is nothing that either son or you or me could do to make God love us any less. There's nothing you or I could do or either of the sons could do to make God love them anymore. He loves us extravagantly, recklessly. Do we get that? Do we understand that his concern is about that relationship, not about our behavior? He'll take care of that later. Get back in the house. That's what he's concerned about. Um, well, the, the other kind of uniting theme in here is, is rejoicing and celebrating. You notice after each one of these examples, the shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders and comes back, gathers his friends and neighbors, come celebrate with me, rejoice. Same thing with a woman. She gathers the coin, finally finds it, gathers her neighbors and friends, celebrate with me, rejoice with me. I've, my lost coin has been found. And the father puts on a feast for the whole village. That's the heart of God as well. God isn't a God of judgment. God is a God, God of celebration. He's asking us to partner with him in that celebration. Uh, what does it look like for us to have the heart of God toward other people? Um, well, we're going to turn the page, literally, and say, well, what does that mean to us? Because now it turns to us. How do we partner with God in seeking and saving the lost? And just making that statement, I'm sure there's, it's, it can be kind of overwhelming, a little intimidating to say, oh, that's a big task. I don't think I'm qualified to do that. I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to do. I don't know enough Bible verses. I've only known God for a short time. I don't even know that much about him. Um, we find lots of ways to disqualify ourselves. So I want to kind of reframe what that means to us, because it's really more of an invitation. It's not a challenge at all. It's an invitation. Because again, God says, this is my job. It's my job to draw, to convict, to save people. That's not our job. God's inviting us to just be there with him. God's inviting us to join him in that way. Um, We get to represent him in front of other people. That's what he asks us to do. Uh, We're his priests. We represent God. Uh, Well, why would we even go? What's our motivation? What would make us want to even do that? Sounds really uncomfortable. Well, again, here's here's a great verse. First uh, or Second Corinthians five fourteen says this. I just put the first part of it up here. Five words, powerful words. For the love of Christ compels us. Uh, this is not something we do out of duty or obligation. It's knowing what what does God do for you. Where do you find yourself in that story? You know, the sheep, the coin, older son, the prodigal son. What has God done in your life to restore you in relationship? That compels me. It's like, I've got to let people know. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I've got, to, I've got to share that somehow. That should be our motivation. There's another verse, First um, Thessalonians 2.8, that says this. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. That was kind of our mantra, um, motivational 
verse for Young Life as we went after kids. We did it because of what God had done for us, the love of God. We loved them the way God would love them. Uh, that's what he's asking us to do. Uh, well, let's talk about that qualification part. Because you may say, okay, I get what you're saying, but again, I've known Jesus for 38 minutes. Uh, I just got baptized last week. I don't know, any, I don't know how to answer people's questions. Um, I'm not qualified. So I want to share this story, uh, one of my favorite stories. It's the story of Jesus confronting the demoniac. And uh, in this story, Jesus is with his disciples in the Sea of Galilee. There was a storm, it's calm, and now they're heading to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's kind of the forbidden zone for Jewish people. They weren't allowed by their parents. They weren't, it was considered unclean. You don't go there. Why? Because it was the Decapolis. It was the ten Roman cities. The non-Jewish, the Gentiles, the unclean lived there. You don't go there. So Jesus takes his disciples. and We're going there. And Jesus gets out of the boat and confronts this demoniac. I mean, it's an amazing scene. We find out um, about this demoniac. He is probably outcast from his town, which is right up the hill. Um, They can't handle him anymore. He's cutting himself. He's hanging out in the tombs in the cemetery. He's so powerful that they've tried to chain him up and bind him, but he keeps breaking his chains. He tears his clothes. He screams at night. And this is his existence. He's hanging out in the tombs in the cemetery. Jesus goes, I I have to talk to that guy. Well, this Jesus steps out of the boat, and this demoniac comes and falls on his knees and begs Jesus not to torture them. And Jesus said, what's your name? Our name is Legion, which is a Roman term for like a thousand, maybe more, soldiers under my command. This guy is severely demon-possessed. And he begs Jesus, don't, don't torture us. Send us into that herd of pigs. Interesting. Well, this herd of pigs, there were like 2,000 pigs. Uh, Jesus says, okay. So we cast them into this herd of pigs. And they go racing into the Sea of Galilee and die. A pig lanch right there. Judy and I were there. We went on our trip to Israel about five, six years ago. And we stood in that spot. Well, how do you know that was the spot? Well, there's only one spot in the Sea of Galilee on the east side that had a hillside, a cliff that kind of bent into the sea. And we were there. And we just got done walking through this Roman town on top of the hill that this demoniac probably came out of. And we're standing there at the base of this little hillside cliff. And down over here is this low area, probably where the cemetery was. So we could just kind of picture this. And then... What's the result of this? Well, it says the next verse, the demoniac is now restored. He's been exercised. Um, He's in his right mind. He's clothed. But now the town's angry because Jesus just wiped out their economy. I mean, I don't get why Jesus did it. I've got to be honest. That's one I'm going to have to ask him. Why the pigs? Why the pig Why? He destroyed their 2,000 pigs. That was probably the biggest part of their economy, wiped out. So they begged Jesus to leave them. And here's why I tell this story. Because in the last, there's one verse, read one verse at a time, says, 
As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Now, you would think that if anybody qualified to go with Jesus, it would be this guy. Um, He is outcast. He has been demon-possessed. He's got no future there in this area. Uh, He doesn't even know who Jesus is. All he knows is that Jesus healed him. He didn't know anything about the Jewish God. He didn't know any verses. You would think Jesus would take him with, yeah, let me prepare you to make a difference. But he didn't say that. This is what Jesus said. Oops, sorry. Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he did. We find out about a year later, Jesus comes back with his disciples, and there are 4,000 people waiting to hear about this Jesus. Why? How did they know? Because this demoniac simply told them what God had done in their life. Friends, your story is enough. If your life has been touched by Jesus, you're qualified. You're qualified to tell people what God has done for you. It's God's job to convict, to draw, to save but that's the part we can play. Um, I love that picture. Um, there's another verse, Matthew 28, famous verse, the Great Commission that says, go and make disciples. It goes on, but I just want to focus on that. Go and make disciples. And in the, that's our English translation. In the Hebrew, it's probably better translated, as you are going, make disciples. It sounds like a small difference, but it's a huge difference in how you view that verse. Because the first one sounds like, oh, I've got to go somewhere and save people. (laughs) But as you are going, it kind of implies as you're following Jesus, as you're growing in your own relationship, just involve other people on your journey, your journey with Jesus. As you're going with him, involve other people. Uh, Position is 90% of it. Put yourself in a position to influence other people. Um... We have, a, we have a saying in Young Life, um, something I've lived with for 50 years, that says, go to where kids are. Go to where kids are. Relate to them on their turf, on their terms, without condition. Just be with them. And pretty soon they want to know why you're there. What are you doing? I've got to check this out. Who is this Jesus guy? Um, put yourself in a position. You know, we have the Well Coffee House out here. Uh, I love that. I love where it's positioned. It's between the office, the business of the church, and where we worship. That's the place where we intersect the community. The well is the place that we want to be in a position to impact people. People to come in and kind of get a whiff of who this Jesus guy is. Maybe even have a conversation, a significant conversation. It's named after the story of the woman at the well, where Jesus has this significant conversation inviting this woman and it changes the whole town. That's why that's there. Uh, what is your well? Where can you be in a position to simply live out your relationship with Jesus? Is it your dorm? Is it your fraternity, sorority, your neighborhood, your family? Uh, wherever it is, don't worry about what to say. Just live out your relationship with him. That's what's going to draw people. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, it's not a derogatory term, it's where he came from, Uh, but St. Francis said this, always preach the gospel, but only when necessary use words. (laughs) I love that. Friends, you are the gospel. 
you are the good news that people are looking for. They're not really that concerned about how many verses you know, what your doctrine is, convince me about this God, does he even exist? But they do want to know, can God change my life? Can God do something for me? You're the gospel. Just live it out in front of people. Uh, another verse or another uh, quote here. From an unknown, I'll, I should put my name on there because it says unknown, so I'll just claim it. But it says this. I believe the world gets to know what Jesus looks like by looking at us, God's people. So I say, let's give him a good look. Let us live a life so powerful and giving that our lives wouldn't make a bit of sense if God didn't exist. Um, love that quote. One more verse, 1 Peter 3.15, one of my favorite verses, says this. Always be prepared to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with gentleness and meekness. Defense wins games. Um, God's not asking you to go out and preach on the corner. He's asking you to live your life, and when people notice it, be prepared to give a defense when somebody asks you what the reason is for the hope that's in you, and you get to share it. Um, Love that picture. But be prepared. What would you tell somebody that said, hey, why do you follow Jesus? Uh, I've noticed you. What's different about you? My dad, when he was 65 years old, just around my wife and I, he said, what's different about your faith? <laughs> Great conversation. I was able to tell him. Um, so that's, that's the invitation. Uh, in the same way, we had these tassels. And by the way, if you didn't get one, there will be in the back if you want to grab one. But... Hopefully wear these next couple weeks. What's the deal with these? They're great conversation starters. You know, if you wear them on yourself, I've seen people wear them on their shirt, their belt, maybe got it on your backpack, your purse. Saw people put it on their wrist. Uh, But it's a great tool because somebody's going to ask, what's with the tassel? And you can tell them, you know. You're not taking the offense. You're just, oh, let me tell you about the tassel. Same thing when people see your life, see you live out your faith in Jesus are going to say, what's with a tassel? What's with a life? And you get the chance to share what God's done in your life. Um, That's what it means. That's the heart of God. And that's the way we can partner with Him. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, Have a great week.